Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And this is London, but coming to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet and SputnikNews.com. We are, of course, on FM in the Washington, D.C. area. 105.5 are the magic numbers there. And on AM, from coast to coast, right across the United States of America. You can listen worldwide on SputnikNews.com, but... As hundreds of thousands of you now do every week, you can watch as well as listen. If you are watching on Facebook, either on my Facebook page or on the multiple RT Facebook pages, please, please, please share, share, share. It's very important you tell all of your friends on Facebook that this show is broadcasting now. Now, we're also, of course, on YouTube. And we are on Twitter and even on Instagram. We're even on one or two other platforms of which I know little. Uh, but we now have a health warning. Unlike the Voice of America, which does exactly what it says on the tin, i.e. speak for America, unlike the BBC, so intimately connected to the state that you go to prison if you don't pay the state their license fee, even if you never watch the BBC. They can shill for free and no health warning, no label uh, stuck on their chest. Uh, but we, on the other hand, are speaking truth to power. We are acting as we speak. We are providing pluralism. We are providing different voices, different takes. Me and Alex Salmond on Scotland, for example. All kinds of people are appearing on RT, but now they will have to wear a badge on their chest. Now, it's a small badge, to be sure, uh, but a cloud no bigger than a man's hand can be a harbinger of great storms to come. And so... I've got my raincoat in the back of the car just in case. It's very important uh, that you follow my YouTube channel. It's very important you subscribe to it. It's very important that you visit my website, georgegalloway.com. I'm not saying anything's imminent, but we have to be careful uh, that we don't allow this great global university to be somehow censored or somehow closed down. Do you feel me? Good. Now, uh, in 1977, along with my editor today, that's how long we have been together, I entered 
the Arab world through the portal of the great city of Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. I loved it so much, I stayed on when the rest of them went home. I lived amongst the debris and the damage from many years of civil war, which had only temporarily lulled when I was there. So I know Beirut in dark days and fine. I know it at peace and I know it at war. The famous, legendary ingenuity and indefatigability of the Lebanese people has allowed them to drag themselves off the floor many, many times and rebuild this jewel of the Orient, uh, which Beirut and Lebanon uh, represents. It's not just the beauty of the countryside, where you can ski on the mountains in the morning and water ski in the Mediterranean in the afternoon, both of which I myself have done. It's not just uh, the remarkable personality of the Lebanese people. It is the fact that it is a fragile, confessional, cross-sectarian community of people which was set up by imperial powers, France about which more later, which divided Lebanon from its mother in Syria and made two states of one piece of Arab land, a familiar prescription uh, which we have seen in many other places. But never mind Sykes-Picot, the Lebanese people have been making a go of it in the most extraordinary circumstances for a very long time. To be sure, the Lebanese government, all governments in Lebanon and across the Arab world are run by crooks. <laughs> to be sure, corruption is endemic in the Lebanese state. Uh, but just as the bumblebee, according to the laws of aerodynamics, cannot fly, its wings are too short, its body too heavy. According to the normal laws of politics and economics, Lebanon could not survive, but survive it has. It has an extraordinary political system, which is one of the main problems for the vultures that have landed, literally, in Beirut over the last few days principal amongst them, little Bonaparte Macron, whose own streets have been burning for over a year, his own security forces leveling out atrocious violence against his own people. But he's landed in Beirut as the savior, the colonial power returned. But the problem for Macron and for President Trump and all the other vultures that are gathering, is that they cannot call for democracy in Lebanon. And I'm going to explain why, because I discovered in the last couple of days a very large number of people don't know why. You see, the president of Lebanon has to be a Christian, according to the Constitution. The prime minister of Lebanon has to be a Sunni Muslim. And the Speaker of the Parliament, 
the least important of these three positions, has to be held by a Shiite Muslim. Now, the main problem with that is that since that scheme was drawn up, the Shiites have become, perhaps they always were, overwhelmingly the biggest community in Lebanon. So the biggest community in Lebanon gets the least important position in the government, and the Christians get the presidency and the Sunnis get the premiership. So if you had one man, one woman, one vote in Lebanon, uh, then Said Hassan Nasrallah would be the president in a landslide, actually. But Hezbollah don't want political power in Lebanon. They are the main defenders of a political system that keeps them in the least important political position because they know that to tamper with this extremely fragile sectarian schema risks all-out civil war and the total destruction of the country, and that's what they don't want. So Trump and Macron, unlike in other places, cannot demand one man, one woman, one vote for Lebanon, because that would lead to the overwhelming victory of the political force that they like least. So what you have in Lebanon is an alliance between the Shiite blocs of Amal, led by the Speaker of the Parliament, Nabih Berri, Hezbollah, and the Christian general, General Aoun, who is the president of the country. Now, you can imagine that that is a powerful block, and that's the problem. It's a powerful block defending Lebanese sovereignty from those who would transgress against it. It's a powerful block stopping the rise of the very Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other Islamist fundamentalists in Lebanon that rose and rose and rose with Western support in Syria. And so we're asking on the poll right now, will Lebanon become the next A, Ukraine, B, Hong Kong, or C, Syria? And Syria is running away with it. 65% of the vote so far. And that's the game, ladies and gentlemen. Having failed to achieve regime change in Syria, the Syrian Arab army and people and their allies, having defeated ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Syria, they want to have another go in Lebanon and see if they can't take down both Lebanon and Syria with one bowling ball. Do you get me? That's what's going on in Lebanon. Of course, corruption. Of course, crooks. Of course, malfeasance. And of course, above all, who left 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate in a warehouse in the port of Beirut for seven years? Who left it there? But just as importantly, who brought it there? Whose ammonium nitrate was this? 
To whom was it being sent? The ship from which it was confiscated was a Moldovan registered ship because, of course, Moldovia is a big maritime power. Uh, but the owners of the ship were Ukrainian. So we have a Ukrainian ship registered in Moldova, docking in Beirut, 2,700 tons of one of the world's deadliest explosives, confiscated and left in the warehouse in the port of Beirut. Big questions, those, aren't they? Where was the destination of that explosive? Why did it dock in Beirut? My own theory is this. We'll test it with a real expert in just a few minutes. This explosive material was intended for the rebels in Syria. It was destined for Al-Qaeda and ISIS. It was part of the regime change operation in Syria. But it was intercepted and taken off, and then nobody did anything about it. But how did it explode? Was it a fire in a fireworks factory next to it? Was it, as Donald Trump said, a bomb, an attack? Or was it a pure industrial accident of utterly devastating proportions? These are the questions that we'll be discussing with Rania Kalik, my colleague, my friend, who was there when it happened. We'll be talking to about the aforementioned Donald Trump. We'll be talking about his putative opponent, Joe Biden. I enter the word putative because the more I see him, the less I believe that he is going to be the candidate against Trump in November. I believe the Democrats are involved in one of the most complex political conspiracies in all American history, about which more later. I will also be talking about the epidemic of fatherlessness. As the father of six children myself, I'm well familiar with the pitfalls of the children's justice system, of the rights of fathers, and of the responsibilities of fathers. Fathers often have almost no rights and often take almost no responsibility. I'm in no doubt, call me a social conservative if you like, that a family without a father is not going to function as well as a family with a father. A child that grows up without a father's influence is more likely to go off the rails than one who doesn't. That's not, of course, to say that single-parent families, male or overwhelmingly more often female, don't bring up their children well. That would be absurd. Some of the best families, some of the best upbringings, 
have been from single parent households. Uh, but that being true does not negate my point that yin and yang, mum and dad, is the best way we've found as a human race so far to raise children, to bring up families. That's what I believe in any case. And we'll be canvassing those points with you as well as with our expert guests in the course of the show. And of course, no show, I'm afraid, is complete in this year of 2020 without a discussion about the coronavirus, which is now spiraling out of control in many parts of the world and even in some parts of Britain. In Aberdeen, we have a new lockdown. In Greater Manchester, extended now to Preston, we have a new lockdown. We have people in their tens, scores of thousands, cheek by jowl, on beaches in England right now. I don't know where they go to the toilet, by the way, but then that's just the kind of silly thing I wonder when I see them. But my main question when I see them is if you're not maintaining social distance, if anybody on that beach has got the coronavirus, you have a very real chance of catching it, just as the people in Aberdeen did when they went to a pub, innocently, as they were entitled to do just last week. And now the whole city and the whole economy is locked down. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll be talking, too, about Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. Now, I'm no stranger to sexual deviancy. I spent nearly 30 years in Parliament, which was full of it. One of my colleagues... Uh, was found dead uh, with uh, Satsuma in his mouth, dangling from the ceiling whilst dressed in ladies' lingerie. And I'm not making that up. That's what happened to a Conservative member of Parliament, a grandee of the world of business journalism, when I was sitting in the House of Commons. The Scottish Parliament is even gayer. They boast they are the gayest of all parliaments anywhere in the world. But it came nonetheless as a shock to me because I remembered that Prince Andrew's ex-wife, Fergie, came a cropper because she was sucking somebody's toes and somebody caught her 
on camera. And suck one toe, you'll always be remembered as a toe sucker. According to the papers now unsealed in the United States of Ghislaine Maxwell, Prince Andrew too was a toe sucker according to a young girl, then age 17, who had been illegally trafficked in order to have her toes sucked by Prince Andrew. It's a family show, so we won't go any further than that, but it is the mother of all talk shows. Well, the poll is raging. Will Lebanon become the next? A, Ukraine, 19%. B, Hong Kong, 16%. C, Syria a portentous 65%. You can vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. 413 of you have done so far. Now, my friend and colleague, Rachel Blevins, journalist, broadcaster, and RT America correspondent, joins us now to talk all things Americana. And as always, Rachel, a very big welcome on the mother of all talk shows. Now, because you are a delicate young lady, I won't take you down all the byways of Prince Andrew and uh, his uh, peccadillos. I'll just ask you uh, briefly, if you will, before we get on to even more important things, uh, has Ghislaine Maxwell survived another week in uh, an American penitentiary? You know, George, as far as we know, she has, but we still have yet to see a mugshot. We've yet to see any images of her being arrested or of her being transferred from the prison that she was supposedly taken to in New Hampshire and then taken over to New York. So that still leaves a lot of questions. If we haven't seen anything other than a court sketch, has she been arrested? Is she there? Is it as they say that it is? There's a lot of questions surrounding that. So as far as the reports are saying, they say that she survived another week, but there still seem to be countless questions surrounding her case. And now as all of these details come out, as there are more documents that are released and unsealed, then we also have to take a look at the U.S. justice system and ask why they've had this information for years and have quite literally done nothing with it. Quite so. Uh any other big names other than Prince Andrew uh, particularly embarrassed by the unsealed papers so far? Well, you know, right now it's the U.S. justice system that should be embarrassed by all of it. But we know we've talked a lot about Prince Andrew. We've talked about Jean-Luc Brunel, Leslie Wexner, big names like that that have been really associated with Jeffrey Epstein. But then all of a sudden those figures just kind of went missing whenever we were told that he went missing as well. And so it does raise those questions of why you've got you know, an FBI and intelligence community here in the United States that is funded to the tune of nearly $63 billion every single year. And yet they're not able to stay on top of those names that are regularly circulated around in the media. And what did Bill Clinton first see in the multimillionaire uh, pervert Jeffrey Epstein? That's an excellent question. You know, Bill Clinton is one of those whose name was mentioned on Epstein's flight logs a number of times. So we know that he flew on his plane. We know that Bill Clinton has been mentioned by Epstein's victims. And we also know that he had meetings with Epstein while he was in the White House. And so as to why there's not a lot more fanfare surrounding that, I can't say. But Bill Clinton definitely has gotten off easy on this one so far. And yet Donald Trump is still sending his love to Ghislaine Maxwell. What's that all about? 
Right. You know, it's been interesting to see Donald Trump try to almost distance himself a little bit by saying, oh, he didn't know these people, even though he's been pictured with these people a number of times. And even though he's made a number of comments about Jeffrey Epstein himself saying that he likes girls a little on the younger side. Well, now Trump is kind of having to walk those comments back and he's probably hoping that they don't follow him all the way to the 2020 election. Let's talk about that then. Um, I saw a picture of Joe Biden on a bike. I don't know if he knew he was on a bike. I'm certain he didn't know where he was going. Uh, but this is a clear attempt to try and halt uh, the now majority feeling in the United States, according to the opinion polls, uh, that, uh, that Joe Biden is approaching, if not already in, a state of senility. It does seem that way. And, you know, I saw that same video of Biden. He got out of his basement, it appears. He was riding on a bike. And a reporter on the sidelines was asking him, who is your vice presidential pick? And he pointed at the reporter and he said, you. And then his campaign had to come out and walk it back and say, no, no, he didn't actually mean that. He was just kidding. But it does bring up the fact that there's so much we still don't know. I mean, we're talking about a Biden ticket for the Democratic Party, and we don't even know who the other half of that ticket is. We're talking about debates hopefully happening, but, you know, the Biden campaign has really distanced themselves from that. And it seems like every single week now we get some new soundbite of him and some ridiculous interview making comments that his campaign is having to come back and apologize for. Yeah, I mean, I saw some video that they're, they're leading him around uh, like a child, uh, and hurrying him on so that he doesn't say too much to anyone. But that can't possibly last as a strategy until November. And he himself has said he looks forward to the debates uh, with uh, President Trump. So it's going to be difficult for them now to walk that back. Uh, it would be like watching Mike Tyson fighting uh, a small child uh, to see Donald Trump against Joe Biden in his current state, wouldn't it? Yeah, it definitely seems like if we do get an in-person debate or even a virtual debate for that matter, it would definitely be something that would be much more of a reality or entertainment show than actually two legitimate presidential candidates who are arguing back and forth about policies and about what they're going to try to bring to the United States over the next four years. Well, Biden might well be uh, entering uh, senility, uh, but Donald Trump seems to me more and more unhinged. Uh, some of the statements that he's making uh, and his walkout today uh, from, uh, from a press conference, literally just waving and walking uh, off the stage, there's good grounds for saying that he might actually not make it either. I mean, the, if you add the mental state of these two candidates together, you don't get Gerald Ford. Yeah, and you know, it's crazy to think that we're talking about the two richest political parties in the United States, and yet these are the two candidates that they have to offer right here. You know, when it comes to Donald Trump, this has certainly been his race to lose whenever it comes to this election, and yet when we're at a time when he could really be stepping up, he seems to kind of be backing down in a lot of ways, especially when you're talking about the fact that the United States has just now hit 5 million coronavirus cases, a world record. And yet Trump came out this week and he said that he wanted to bring some executive actions. He wanted to stand up for those Americans who are facing eviction or who are struggling to pay their loans because of unemployment. And yet he's gotten a lot of backlash from that, from people saying, well, it's easy 
for him to talk and to say that he wants to bring those executive actions, but to actually put those actions into place, that's going to be another thing coming. So what's your feeling about it, uh, Rachel? Um, I, I know what the polls say. They show Biden consistently ahead by about 10 points, uh, less in the swing states. Um, if you were calling it now, is it Biden, you think? Well, when looking back at 2016, you know, Donald Trump was consistently behind Hillary Clinton whenever it came to the polls. They said that there was no chance of him winning, and then he managed to win it anyway. But we also have to remember when looking back at 2016, the United States saw the lowest voter turnout in 20 years because nearly half of Americans said that they would rather just stay home and not vote at all than to have to go and vote for two of the most unpopular candidates in U.S. history. Now we've replaced Hillary Clinton with Joe Biden, but at the same time, it seems like we're right back in that same place where we have two unpopular candidates that no one really wants to vote for. So I think whenever it comes down to this election, I think it's going to be really close, but it could still be Trump taking it away just as long as he, you know, gets those coronavirus cases down and gets the economy back into some short, sort of shape that people are actually happy with. It could still be his race. So finally, and I'm grateful for your time, the $64,000 question, therefore, is who is Biden's vice presidential pick? You know, I don't even know if he knows at this point. You know, they've said that it may be Kamala Harris, who is a senator who was initially running for the Democratic nomination herself, but she got a lot of backlash from her record as a prosecutor and from the fact that she specifically targeted poor minorities in her area. We've also heard people talk about Susan Rice, who was President Obama's national security advisor, but of course, she was embedded right there in all of his administration's foreign policy decisions. And so basically what they've guaranteed is to say that they're not going to say it just yet whenever it comes to the vice presidential pick, but it will certainly be someone who is going to stay within that establishment and is going to toe the party line no matter what, even if Joe Biden doesn't make it that far. Rachel Blevins, as always, big thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Thank you. Uh, Paul, will Lebanon become the next Ukraine, the next Hong Kong or the next Syria? You can vote now on my Twitter feed. I'm being flooded with uh, paperwork. Sean says in response to the poll, every country that America has touched in the Middle East has turned into another Syria. And on Twitter, Mr. S says, Moats needs to be available live to everyone on TV instead of the stuff on the BBC News Channel. Fortunately, I have YouTube. Hi, George. Thank you, Mr. S. Glynis says, congratulations to you all and welcome to your new baby girl, lovely News. Thank you, Glynis. You'll see a picture uh, and the name uh, later in the show. Uh, Phil says, Lebanon battered and beaten economically and physically for so many years. This catastrophe is very convenient and it's heartbreaking. And by email, Matt says, here in Portugal, there are shops and bars with antiviral cash machines. These are tills into which money is inserted and the change dispensed without any human contact or manipulation. Do you have anything similar in England? I don't know, actually. Maybe someone can tell me that. YouTube, Levi says, Dr. Ranjit did a superb stream the other day. Honestly, the man is a legend. He is indeed. And Peace For All says, hope those victims of royal toe-sucking had athlete's foot. And Richard says, 
George, I'm strapped in for a bumpy ride. And Paul says, I missed my weekly smile with Burning City to Burning City. I thought it was unkind, Paul. And on Facebook, June says, congratulations, best wishes to you and your family on your new arrival. You make me even more proud to be Scottish, if indeed that is possible. Thank you, lovely June. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, I've got a lot of name suggestions coming in. I'll uh, better leave them till later. This current poll, will Lebanon become the next Ukraine, the next Hong Kong, or the next Syria? Still running for the next uh, 15 minutes or so, and you can vote on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Now, I said all I intend to say about what happened in Beirut. Rania Kalek, my colleague, the legendary journalist, presenter, and writer and broadcaster, was there when the balloon went up. And what a devastating explosion it was, too. Uh, Rania, uh, our condolences first and foremost. Uh, Lebanon lost a lot of blood, a lot of people, a lot of uh, damage of all kinds, uh, including to its political infrastructure. But let's start with the human impact first. First of all, tell us what it was like. Well, George, first I want to say congratulations on the new baby. Thank I'm very you. excited that you Thank had such you. a great week. And yes, it's been a rough week for Lebanon. Um, I was there when the explosion took place, and it's one of the most terrifying, it is the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced. Uh, Luckily, I came out uninjured. Um, it was like an earthquake. The windows blew open. Um, and then, you know, there's this big, loud sound. Uh, but I was one of the lucky ones. Um, almost every single person I know has an injury. Uh, like, over 150 people have, have were found dead. And just surveying the damage in the aftermath, you know, I, I toured the city after this took place and walked around. And, I mean... You know, no building, no restaurant, no hotel, uh, no storefront was left untouched by this explosion and the pressure that it created across the city. Uh, it, I mean, the, the level of devastation was so widespread. You know, I've been to Syria. I've been to Iraq. I've seen devastation from from war, but it's the kind of devastation that takes, you know, takes place gradually, one street at a time, right? One neighborhood at a time. This was an entire city just you know, destruction, as though there had been war there for years, but in a matter of a few minutes. Now, uh, when you look at that devastation and when you look at the video, uh, several angles now, what's your thought about what could possibly have created such an explosion, such an inferno? Well, it seems to be the case. I mean, people close to Hezbollah believe this. Lebanese general security has come to this conclusion. And the more information that comes out, the more it seems that this was a case of just utter incompetence by a completely dysfunctional uh, state, which Lebanon has always been, that left this fertilizer, massive amounts of it, sitting in very uh, improper and dangerous conditions for six years until a fire broke out at the port and it exploded. Um, you know, we knew there was a fire at the port about 20, 25 minutes before the ammonium nitrate uh, caught on fire. So it was a fire that started in a different part of the port near the ammonium nitrate 
And then the ammonium nitrate caught on fire. We know that over the last six years, there have been several complaints and warnings about this material being stored in this way. Um, and so it does seem to have been an accident of epic proportions. Uh, that said, and in the aftermath of this accident, there are political factions that are allied with the Americans inside Lebanon that are trying to manipulate the situation to put the blame on Hezbollah, which is completely absurd. Um, and, you know, of course, the U.S. is encouraging this. I've covered the demonstrations that started taking place in Lebanon next, last year in October due to the economic collapse. There's a lot of legitimate anger in the streets people who are angry at the ruling elite uh, then and now, but there's also rioting taking place and there's also manipulations by particular political factions trying to take advantage of the situation to try to push against their political rivals, in this case, Hezbollah. So that we, we need to be very clear about that because the narrative that we see developing, particularly in the Western media, uh, is this was Hezbollah's fault, which is absolutely untrue. This was the fault of the entire Lebanese power structure, of which Hezbollah plays one part, but that includes several political parties, the most corrupt and, uh, and, and at fault of which are actually the ones that are allied with the Americans. Yes, I made that point earlier. Uh, undoubtedly, there is rampant corruption in Lebanese uh, government. There always has been. There is in all Arab countries, uh, including the Arab countries uh, closest to the West. Uh, but the politicians most corrupt in Lebanon have always been the politicians most close to the West. A hundred percent. You know, this economic collapse, the deterioration of Lebanon's economy is the fault of of people like the Hariri family, uh, which is close to Saudi Arabia and the West. Uh, Riyad Salemi, who's head of the central bank in Lebanon and actually engineered this entire Ponzi scheme economy that came crashing down, as it ultimately always would, is basically a puppet of the Americans. Um, the people that are the most corrupt in Lebanon are the ones who are always causing the most problems. And unfortunately, we don't get the right picture of that in the West because everything that happens in Lebanon is always portrayed through the lens of how can we make Hezbollah look bad, right? Because Hezbollah is, you know, an enemy of Israel. It's, it's an ally of Iran. America does not like Hezbollah. They call them a terrorist group. So everything that happens in Lebanon is always viewed in that lens in the West. And it's just wrong. Um, Lebanon is a very polarized place, but the Lebanese that end up getting attention in the Western press end up being people who are allied with these pro-American parties. And the, and the situation is much more complicated and complex and nuanced than that. Well, uh, in, my, uh, in my monologue at the beginning, I was making some, I hope, salient points. Um, if we had proper democracy in Lebanon, uh, then, of course, Hezbollah would have an overwhelming majority in the Lebanese parliament, and Hassan Nasrallah would be the president. Uh, <laughs> it's possible, uh, yeah. And, and it, it's only because Hezbollah doesn't want to take power in Lebanon, because it wants to keep the sectarian, fragile sectarian balance, uh, so that the Christians can always have the president so that the Sunnis can always have the premiership. So this is a bit of a handicap to Western propagandists, isn't it? Because they yeah. can't demand democracy in Lebanon because democracy would give them uh, the result they least want. 
Exactly. And even in this system that we have, Hezbollah does win a large amount of seats in parliament because Hezbollah has a huge constituency. And they have a huge constituency because they are well respected in their community because they're seen as protectors. They're seen as protectors against the Israelis who occupied southern Lebanon in a, bru like a brutal occupation, just like they do to Palestine, for, for years. Uh, and the only reason that Israel no longer occupies southern Lebanon is because Hezbollah kicked them out um, with force. Uh, Hezbollah also played a very significant role it, with uh, the arming and funding of jihadist groups in Syria. They, those groups tried to make their way into Lebanon, including ISIS, as well as the uh, litany of American-backed, uh, you know, so-called, you know, revolutionary rebel groups that actually were jihadist groups allied with al-Qaeda. These groups tried to make their way into Lebanon. And the only reason they didn't make it to Beirut is because of Hezbollah. <laughs> That's the only reason. I mean, Hezbollah's existence is to protect the borders and the sovereignty of Lebanon. That's how they perceive themselves and their community perceives them that way. So that's why they have popularity within particularly the Shia community in Lebanon. Um, but of course, there's a lot of propaganda in Lebanon. There's other political factions that view everything through a sectarian lens and despise Hezbollah because those are their political rivals who are allied with the Saudis, who are allied with the Americans. And so it's, it's really important that people understand that when you do read news about Lebanon, uh, you need to take everything with a grain of salt because it's cut, it, it's being filtered through a Western press that has a very uh, a very um, nefarious agenda about what they want to happen there. Now we've uh, we've both seen many times the protests and demonstrations and so on around the governmental buildings, the Parliament building in downtown Beirut. But yesterday's seemed of a, a more serious order. Uh, they were able to break into several ministries. Uh, can the current government of Lebanon survive? And if it were to fall, uh, what would be the, uh, the uh, successor government? How so is I this do going wanna... to break? So I do want to be clear about the protests that took place yesterday. There was, of course, that those protests were multifaceted. There was people who were angry because they lost their homes because of the explosion, because of the corruption. And of course, there was also rioters who were sent in there with an agenda that belonged to certain political factions. And then there was also people who are poor and were using it as an opportunity to you know, loot what they could because they got they have nothing. Um, so that's important to, to recognize. But as for the government, I mean, this government is was always a temporary government that was very weak, that came about last year after the government of Saad Hariri basically resigned in the aftermath of the October 17th protests. Um, and so, you know, this government is now under extreme pressure because of the explosions, but not just the explosion. The explosion came on top of this economic crisis that was causing a almost overnight deterioration in living standards in Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon went from being a pretty middle-class, uh, well-off, decent country for a lot of people to having power cuts that last 20 hours a day, uh, to having an unemployment rate that's you know skyrocketing, expected to reach 50% by the end of the year. Uh, not just because of COVID-19, though that's a part of it, but also because of the economic collapse. Um, so this government resigning was sort of always inevitable. It was just a matter of time of when they would end up resigning. And the explosion was just so severe and catastrophic. It's caused that. Now, the you have these mass resignations and calls for new elect, new parliamentary elections. But the thing is, Lebanon, like you mentioned earlier, it's it has a governmental system that's set up based on sect. It allocates power based on sect. And because of that, 
Lebanon is always going to have people who are voting for their sect leaders. And so the same people, the same, uh, the same power structures continue to be elected in Lebanon because of the way the system is set up. As long as it's set up by sect, you're going to continue to have the same people, maybe, maybe different names and different faces, but the same, ultimately the same elites being in charge of the country. So as long as that stays the same, Lebanon's going to stay the same. Lebanon's going to continue to be a place where, you know, legalized theft and bribery and corruption, uh, destroys everything. And until that changes, you're not going to see a real change no matter what government takes power. Lastly, and I'm grateful for your time, Rania, um, the infantilism uh, on display from some quarters uh, in Lebanon when President Macron arrived, uh, the cry that France is our mother, and uh, even some asking for uh, a renewal of the French mandate uh, over Lebanon. How far does that go? Surely not far. <laughs> so I think it's, I just want to note that it's, it's interesting to me that Macron cannot walk around parts of France without being booed. Uh, but he can At come to places like Lebanon and be cheered, right? Yeah. Um, in the aftermath of a desperate explosion. But it also, you know, the, the areas of Beirut that were impacted the hardest because of their proximity to the port are areas that are Christian areas, um, that are the constituency in those areas is allied with parties like the Lebanese forces and like the Kataib party, which are right-wing Christian parties that are allied with the U.S. and are essentially like pro-Israel parties. Um, and so the people in these areas speak French. They have a very, um, not all of them, but there is a colonial legacy and mentality because Lebanon was initially supposed to, thought of when they carved up the Middle East as being France's little like Christian, you know, island and a sea of Muslims, if you will. And so there are people who view themselves as Christians in Lebanon as sort of like French culturally. They even speak French. They go to French schools. So the area Macron was touring is an area where France and the French are viewed in a in a very and, and the colonial legacy of France is viewed in a very positive light. It certainly does not reflect the views across Lebanon at all. Rania Kalek, thanks for joining us and thank God you survived the horror of this week in Beirut. Thank you again for joining us. You can vote now uh, on our poll. Will Lebanon be the next Ukraine, Hong Kong, or Syria? Syria is up to 70% now. Certainly that's the hope of those who wish to pull the rug from underneath uh, the state of Lebanon. 636 of you have voted. Uh, there'll be a new poll at 9 o'clock where I'll be asking you to help me pick the name of my latest child. We have a conservative government that sometimes seems to be throwing public money around like a drunken sailor at least in some directions, usually to the corporations and the people with whom they're closest. But the Eat Out to Help Out scheme is a particularly controversial one, from my point of view, because the same government that is, that is sending messages that the obesity crisis in Britain, which is a real one, is a clear and present danger in the time of the coronavirus is giving you 50% off your McDonald's or your Nando's or whatever your junk food of choice is. I'm not making that up 
for foreign viewers and listeners. If you go on a certain day of the week and if you can get in to a junk food outlet, you get 50% off your bill and the government makes up the other 50% to the purveyor. Now, not everyone's against it. Neil Davy is a prominent journalist and author uh, on these kind of issues, particularly on the restaurant industry and hospitality in general. And I'm glad to say that Neil joins us now. Neil, welcome. What about my obesity point? Good evening, George. Um, it's, you have a very, very valid point on that score. It is, um, like so many things during this, um, the, the last however many years of, of this particular government, there are many things that appear to be contradictory. From an industry perspective, um, I think it's a very good thing. The, uh, the hospitality industry has not been supported particularly well through the, the furlough scheme. Um, and if you're trying to restore confidence using a sector that by its very nature has high hygiene and cleanliness standards is probably a good way of getting a little bit of confidence back from the, the average punter. And how is it working, Neil? Uh, I mean, I, I haven't myself availed myself uh, of it, I, because, partly because I don't actually approve of it as a use of public money. Uh, but my colleagues through the glass here, uh, they've been trying to find a place that they could get in to get their, uh, their, uh, their discount, which seemed to suggest it's being widely taken up. It, it is. Um, it runs, it's Monday to Wednesday, um, until the 31st of August. Uh, it's 50% off your bill to a maximum of £10. Um, it's, I know there is, it's very, and it doesn't include alcoholic drinks, does include um, soft drinks. So, I mean, it's not necessarily a case. I mean, I've been to a couple of cafes not even realising they were part of the scheme and last week and, and paid £1.20 for a coffee. So, there's a lot of places that are participating without necessarily um, sort of pushing it out as a, as a publicity thing. Mm. A lot of the restaurants that are are doing incredibly well um, through this. They've, they've picked up an awful lot of bookings. Whether it maintains after the 31st of August is the kind of the big question. How has the sector fared, Neil? I mean, uh, obviously, a lot of people uh, depend on it for their livelihood. Uh, In and, uh, of course, uh, if I missed anything in the lockdown. Uh, I missed going to restaurants, so mm -hmm. I, I'm not trying to be St. Francis here. Uh, no, absolutely. Um, uh, how badly has the sector been hit? It's, I mean, it, it's been quite devastating. I mean, from the, for the sector, for the support industries, um, I mean, it's a huge, huge part of British social life. It's a huge, huge part of um, the economy. Um, and the most recent figures I could find suggest it's, it's worth around £100 billion a year to the UK economy. Um, and, that's, and that's not necessarily including the, the producers, the suppliers, the makers of cleaning equipment, all the other sort of per, uh, peripheral things that um, sort of go into the industry. Um, a lot of the staff, um, were, when, if they were furloughed, the, one of the negative things that the government have done, um, they didn't include something called the trunk system, um, which is a, a system by which sort of a lot of, as you can imagine, a lot of hospitality staff um, receive massive top-ups to their income through service charges and tips. 
Um, the Tronc system means that is reported to the government. It is taxable, so they pay income tax on this level. Um, when they furloughed staff, they did it on the non-Tronc rate. So a lot of people, instead of being on 80% of their salary, were probably on somewhere between 40 and 60% of their salary yeah. for, for several months, which has been a huge struggle. Um, I mean, across the industry, uh, across suppliers, you've seen a lot of companies and a lot of restaurants have pivoted. They've started doing deliveries. They started doing meal kits. They've started doing um, delivery of fresh produce and ingredients just to kind of keep teams together, just to keep some income coming in. Um, this has been a massive boost to the sector as far as I can see. The concern is what happens if it's going to be the first sector that gets closed again and what happens on the 1st of September when they stop. Yeah, well, I mean, these lockdowns uh, have closed. I mean, in Aberdeen, you can't go now to a pub or a restaurant. And uh, presumably the same is true in the affected parts of Greater Manchester. Um, so there is always the possibility of another uh, short, sharp or even longer uh, lockdown. Now, on the face of it, you'd imagine that the bigger the chain restaurant, uh, the more likely it is to survive. Uh, but I notice uh, that Pizza Express next door uh, to us here has not reopened and will not reopen uh, perhaps hundreds of its outlets. So even big and well-known chains might not survive this. No, absolutely. It's, it's been very, very tough times. The, I mean, before all of this kicked off or before everything sort of COVID-19 related happened, you had massive increases in, in rent, you had massive increases in business rates. So a lot of companies um, have been referred to as zombie companies. They were kind of the walking dead before this. To some extent, I think Pizza Express may be a, a victim of that. Um, I believe they're closing 67 sites. Um, I think they've been struggling for a little while. It is going to give a few businesses an opportunity to perhaps sort of fold, go out of business, close an awful lot of um, outlets and with a suitable scapegoat where perhaps it's not been, uh, they've not been successful for a long, long time, um, perhaps been for whatever reason. Um, it's going to be quite how a lot of these things will bounce back. I don't know. The, there's not a great rush for new places to come in, certainly in the centre of towns. The, I think neighbourhood places are going to thrive before the centre of town. I mean, Soho, for example, I know so many people working in and around Soho who aren't renewing leases, who aren't going back into the centre of town. They yeah. will be based well, in I, the community. Well, I'd be one of those, uh, Neil. I mean, I now only go to a place where I can sit outside, for example. Exactly. Uh, I haven't yet been inside uh, a restaurant, and I'm not okay. sure that I, that I ever will again. H how much do you think this will change things, if you like, fundamentally? Uh, I see a lot of people now talking about cooking that they are doing at home, including people who never cooked before. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think takeaways, home cooking uh, is going to continue to grow? Uh, and maybe we'll never get back to no, the absolutely. situation I, that we I, had I, before. I completely agree. I, I don't know what the um, the landscape's going to look like. I mean, I, I 
at the start of all of this, there were an awful lot of webinars for the industry. I sort of sat through a few things on Zoom, and it always seemed to be take an hour and a half to come to the conclusion of, well, we don't know what it's going to look like, but we've got to be ready for it when it happens. <laughs> I think, well, that's, yeah, thanks, thanks for that. That was uh, yeah, great, great wisdom and really worth four and a half hours of my life. So no one really knows what it's going to look like. I think things, as you say, eating um, at home, is still going to be a big part of that. I think a lot of restaurants are now taking advantage of that. There are an awful lot of restaurants doing mail-out kits. There are great restaurants that are selling their ingredients. Um, places like Hawksmoor and Goodman are sending out steak boxes um, of quite fantastic meat to their customers and, and, and to others. There's, there's a lot of um, people who've pivoted very, very effectively to get their things out to a wider audience and in some cases are going from just regional to nationwide. The uh, It's going to be, I think for an awful lot of restaurants, it's also a revenue stream they've maybe not considered in the past. So I think that could be a vital part, certainly again on the neighbourhood thing. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, Soho and Covent Garden have pedestrianised a number of streets, so they put outdoor seating. Like you, I would much prefer to be sitting outside. Uh, quite how that will feel in October uh, remains to be <laughs> good. Remains point. to be seen. <laughs> Neil, I've enjoyed talking to you. Really, uh, I'm really Thank interested in the subject. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now we'll be talking about children needing fathers. Seems to be rather a more controversial idea than I'd thought. But first, 60-second break. Why don't we? Now, uh, Michael Likovich is Director of Communication at Families Need Fathers, and he should be joining me now. Michael, I hope I got your name uh, right. Please forgive me if I didn't. Uh, That's pretty good. Thank you, George. I appreciate it. Now, look, I'm a father, and I believe in fatherhood. I believe fathers have responsibilities, and I believe, and I expressed it so, uh, that uh, children need fathers and that a mother and father are the best model that society has come up with so far uh, for bringing up children. That turns out to be a quite a controversial set of views I've got, according to the paperwork uh, I'm uh, receiving. So help me out here. Well, I mean, your, your views shouldn't be controversial. In many countries, they're not controversial. Um, over here, they, actually, in terms of the public, for the public, they're not particularly controversial. Um, 75, 80% of it, all, all, all parents think that both parents, after separation, should continue to have full involvement with their children. Um, unfortunately, that's not the reality then of what actually happens in the sort of family justice and support system that we have over here in the UK, um, which creates massive problems. And, and we have a system of support that's not fit for purpose. And the result is that you have a lot of people who think that it doesn't work and it breaks down, which is true, it does. It breaks down. It doesn't work effectively. Um, people, there aren't effective out-of-court routes for people to come to agreements. Uh, there is no coherent government strategy for separated families. The result is that it pits parents against each other, and we end up with um, the worst of all worlds. And in particular, the children suffer, their well-being suffers, and and the adults too. So we we have a frightful situation. But your your, your beliefs are actually 
very reasonable and there's nothing wrong with those. Um, the leaders in the world, uh, countries like, for example, Sweden, Finland, uh, many of the Scandinavian countries, but they're not the, the only ones, um, actually have a strategy, a national strategy which they've been applying for the last 40, 50 years, which is to promote and encourage the involvement of fathers as well as mothers in the care as well as the provision financially of support for children. And, and they've been very effective with that strategy. They've been building on it. Um, the well-being of children is much stronger. They have m many fewer um, mental health issues. Um, there's something like a 30% differential between um, in, in, in well-being of children who have both parents fully involved in their upbringing um, after separation versus those who do not. So um, the evidence is there. We just don't have the commitment to make the change, to make the necessary changes that will make a difference and actually help parents to separate in ways that supports their children and, and actually is ultimately best for everybody. Now, uh, let's start with, uh, because fathers have got rights, children have got rights, but fathers have responsibilities also. Uh, and there's a major problem, isn't there? Uh, in this country, in the United States, I'd hazard a guess, uh, of fathers not shouldering their responsibilities. How big a problem is that? Well, it depends which responsibility you're talking about. Are you talking primarily about financial responsibility or caring responsibilities? Um, but you are right. I mean, the, the US and the UK uh, are amongst the worst in terms of the provision they offer, for example, for um, paternity leave, for parental leave for dads when children are born. So um, it's not entirely surprising that they're, they, they are that bit less inclined to provide care time for their children because they are so, so terribly under supporting. We have some of the, in, in time terms, we have some of the most generous maternity provisions in the world out of OECD countries. And we're down there right at the bottom, along with the United States, of the rankings on paternity leave. I mean, the US is not very good on maternity leave or paternity leave, uh, but, but we are particularly bad on, on the, that provision. And if you go, for example, somewhere like uh, Sweden or Finland, you'll find that dads are given uh, three months of paternity leave, um, at funded at sort of around 80% of their salaries. Um, as well as mums, and this has been a deliberate strategy to engage them from a very early age so that dads actually get to spend care time um, with, uh, with their children. And for example, in Finland, um, uh, two or three years ago, Finland became the first country in the world where dads actually spend longer caring for their children than mums do. We're only talking about a very small difference, you know, eight minutes a day. So in effect, they've achieved equality, but they have achieved it through policy, government policy of supporting dads in supporting their children, not only financially, but also in, in terms of um, care time. And, and they're paying the dividends, they're re reaping the bit of the dividends of that in the well-being of their children, but also in other areas. So for example, um, the, the gender pay gap is narrowest in those countries which offer the best um, and most generous that, paternity uh, That is an interesting point. But nonetheless, uh, mm -hmm. Michael, we both know no point in hiding from it. There's a significant number of fathers that just do a runner. Uh, they don't pay unless the uh, government can catch up with them. And even then, it's like uh, drawing teeth. 
uh, and uh, a lot of fathers simply don't want to be involved. They've moved on. And their uh, dislike uh, of the mother uh, means that they no longer care for their children. And, and, and this is a serious problem, but the problem is also not being very effectively stated in, in the, the, what we hear mostly in the media. Yes, there is a problem with so-called deadbeat dads, those who kind of run away and don't support them. And we would argue, of course, had they been more involved with their children, they would be more supportive. And we know from the figures that involved fathers are much better at financially supporting uh, their children and the mums of their children as well. So there's an issue around involvement and how the system supports their involvement. But, but also, there's a lot of misrepresentation of what actually is going on in terms of the financial support and, and not, not committing to the children. Um, there's a huge amount of debt which is accrued under the old CSA and now under CMS, Child Maintenance Service, of, of child support arrears. But actually, when you look at those, those arrears, you'll find that the vast, vast majority of it is are arrears from people on extremely low incomes. So you're actually, in many cases, dealing with a problem of poverty more than you are of abandonment of responsibility. Um, you know, a lot of, if you, you know, we, we, there's a lot of the work that's been done by both agencies of the government and even the Centre for Social Justice that developed universal credit has identified that there's a problem in the way that the child maintenance calculation works. And the problem is particularly horrendous for people on low incomes, on minimum wages, or who are kind of a part-time work, who uh, or in, in, in gig economy work. The, the, the formula just breaks down because it actually means that they, by the time they have paid their child maintenance, they cannot afford to pay for a roof over their own head um, to, to live and to, to pay for their own food and their own day-to-day -day essential living costs. So, I mean, we did a survey a few years ago and 17% of dads who responded to that particular survey, I appreciate it's not a scientific survey, um, said that they gave up work completely because it didn't pay for them. Now, you know, DWP know this, the Department of Work and Pensions know this, the government know this. It's been reported in many, many authoritative sources to them, uh, but they continue to drag their feet in trying to do something about it. It's one of those um, hot potato issues that they, they don't really want to address. Now, turning to the father's rights, uh, let's be blunt. It is perfectly possible. In fact, it is, uh, it is uh, remarkably common uh, that uh, where a wife or a mother uh, decides... Are, are we still got Michael there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, the mother uh, decides that she no longer wants the father uh, and immediately... Uh, the father's relationship with the children is oftentimes fantastically, dramatically uh, disrupted. So one yes. minute you're living with your children, uh, you might be a very good father, uh, but their mother no longer likes you, tells you to leave, and then you're on once a fortnight uh, for, uh, for a few hours. Uh, and only after trenchant uh, negotiation. This is very painful uh, for a father, uh, but it's also potentially disastrous for the children, isn't it? 
It's absolutely frightful. We we don't have a, a presumption of shared care in law, a, a rebuttable presumption, which means that in effect what happens is that possession of the children becomes 90% of the law. And it's very easy for, um, well, it's usually mothers, it can be fathers too, but it's usually mothers in these situations who, if they don't wish the father to have contact, to simply stop it. And, and, other, and, and then the only recourse you have, I mean, you can try mediation, but somebody who's determined to block you out of that relationship will block you out. They will simply stop it. And your then only recourse is to try to turn to the support of um, family justice. And family justice is frightfully ineffective and actually adds to the harm because it's that uh, we have an adversarial justice system. Um, and, and we have in this, in this country one of the worst problems in the world. Certainly in the developed world, we have one of the worst problems. We have 65,000 children involved every year in private law cases. That's around 10% of births every year. 36% um, um, of families are separating before their children reach the age of 16. Um, and, they go, and they rely on the family courts to assist them. But actually, the family courts are not fit for purpose. It typically takes, the official figures say that it takes 29 weeks to get to a final arrangement from a court. Now, those figures we know are understated uh, because, they, the, because of repeat cases that come back. So in reality, it's probably about three quarters of a year on average. And now under COVID, we can expect that to go up to be over a year. So it is a frightful, frightful situation. And by that, and, and, and a year or six months or a year is an absolute age for a six-year-old or a five-year-old. It, it's, 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 it's an eternity. And the damage that's being done is absolutely colossal, both to the father, usually, occasionally the mum, and absolutely to the children who get caught up in it, in the, in the adversarial fight and the battle that ensues. So what we have really is a public health issue, an urgent public health issue that demands proper coordinated government attention to have a proper strategy, an effective strategy for how separated parents um, should be assisted. Um, we have no guidance, for example, in what the care arrangement should be. So parents go to court not, not, not knowing what to expect. Um, they might have avoided going to court if they knew that without domestic abuse or other extenuating circumstances, that they might get a certain share of care time. But there is no published guidance. It's a, it's, it's, it's a sort of a no man's land. Yeah, well, it's uh, hit and miss depending on who the judge is. And of course, there's now no legal aid uh, for people uh, in, the, in the family justice uh, system and it sits in secret uh, for obvious reasons but that means it's not subject to pol political or public scrutiny in the way that other parts of the justice system are and uh, I mean it goes without saying that you could be the father uh, one day madly in love with your children uh, kicked out of the relationship uh, and a boyfriend can move in the next day uh, without any checks at all on uh, their suitability and they're suddenly with your children 24 hours a day and you're lucky if you see them once a week. 
You're absolutely right, George. I mean, this is absolutely horrendous. The, you know, we, we want there to be um, a rebuttable presumption that both parents will be involved. We also would like to see something akin to what they do in Florida, which is they have a standing temporary order, which means as soon as people separate, they have a an order which basically stipulates a certain minimum amount of time that the child is going to spend with each parent. And if anybody wants to contest that, they can have an urgent hearing to make representations why that shouldn't be the case. But over here, we force people through the most awful, painful process, as you say, to sometimes just get an hour a week or two or nothing. And, and as time goes by, the delays in the system are so terrible that as time goes by, the, 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 the status quo becomes the norm. And the status quo ends up being with the children being with their mums in most cases, and dads, actually good dads. We're not talking about people who are harmful to their children. We're talking about good dads who want to care and be responsible for their children, who want to provide care time, who want to support them financially, um, who, who find themselves denied reasonable arrangements. And we know that children benefit so much from having both of their parents. They're part of their identity. They are who they are. And, and you're quite right, George, that the issue with legal aid, I mean, they, the government removed it um, 2012 back, so by, from 2013 onwards, there's essentially no legal aid um, unless there's allegations of domestic abuse which are made, um, and then only to one party. So so the, the effect is that, as, as Sir James Munby, the previous president of the family division said, um, fam private family law has become a lawyer-free zone. And what you've got is very vulnerable people who have no income who, or the low income who cannot afford the 250 or more pounds an hour that a lawyer will cost them, um, who are going before a judge having never been in court before, trying to explain why, having to, to defend why they need to, need to be or should be involved in their children's lives just because somebody has said no. I'm not letting you because they're angry, because they're bitter, because they've moved on and found a new partner. It's, it's absolutely horrendous and totally unacceptable. And we need to have a complete reinvention of the system with better education, better out-of-court settlement routes, clear guidance about shared care arrangements after separation and the benefits to children, and, and ways of keeping people out of this divisive system, which is does such colossal damage to children and, and, and their parents. It's beyond imagination. And then, by the way, you know, if you have gone to court, and those who have bought, paid for lawyers in our own survey, each side has spent, on average, £23,000, a huge amount of money for most people, um, and you've got your precious court order which says you're going to see your child every other week, and there's no certainty that it will be complied with or obeyed. It's often, are, uh, it's often simply... Uh not implemented. And then it's, what do you do? Spend thousands more exactly. and wait many more months. Uh, exactly. I wish we had more time, Michael. Alas, mm -hmm. we don't. It's been a pleasure uh, talking Thank to you. you even about such a distressing mm -hmm. subject. Thank you very much indeed. Michael Levkovich of the Families Need Fathers movements. Let me know what you think of what you have heard there. But let me take a call from Beirut. Anastasia is on the line. Anastasia, welcome. Hi, George. Thank you. Uh, congratulations on the newborn. Thank you. And thank you for this platform as well. 
Um, I just wanted to, to share with you a bit uh, uh, what I think about uh, what's going on in Lebanon. I am Lebanese myself. Um, I definitely don't think that Lebanon will be the next Syria or Ukraine. Of course, the situation started destabilizing when um, Hezbollah and uh, its allies were elected by the people uh, to run the government. Um, it will definitely not be easy. It is a war that we're facing right now. Um, but uh, we will not be Syria. I mean, hopefully we will not be Syria or Ukraine or Hong Kong. Um, and uh, about the blast... It looked I a bit think- Hong Kong yesterday, Anastasia. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Sorry? It looked a bit like Hong Kong yesterday. Uh, yeah, it did, but uh, definitely uh, because of the blast, because of uh, everything uh, going on, the tension, um, the feelings, the emotion that the people are currently uh, experimenting, uh, of course, the situation does not seem very stable. But knowing the Lebanese community and the Lebanese behavior and um, um, uh, the, the fatigue that we have or that we um um, we feel or like uh, will not allow us to continue with these, um, uh, I don't know, these uh, behaviors, I would say. Um, the blast definitely was, was not a coincidence uh, or a pure accident. I mean, everybody is saying that, yes, um, the nonchalance of the government and, and uh, led to this explosion. But, I mean, the timeline seems a little bit weird and a bit too convenient um, for the anti-government um, um, parties and, and, and the West. And if you look generally at the, at the catastrophes or like the man-made catastrophes around the world, um, uh, they usually come either after war or before war or like during war. It's, it's just like um, this all seems very weird. And, and t- talking about uh, uh, from a um, business aspect, you know, um, somebody just deciding that they want to leave the uh, ammonium nitrate um, because they're just like tired of the litigation. And it just seems like absurd. And it doesn't make any sense that somebody would just like um, leave their. Um, no, their but the, 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 the material was worth millions of dollars. Exactly. So, so why would somebody just like leave it out there and just not claim it back? So this is this is nonsense, and this doesn't make any sense. And 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 looking at it from uh, from um, from everything going on around in, in the Middle East, and 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 um, the 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 power dynamics changing, it just does not seem a coincidence. And like using the protesters, and I would say no, the uh, the the political parties using this. Um, uh, this uh, tragic uh, uh, event uh, for their, um, uh, for their, um, I would say, for their uh, interest or like uh, political gain. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it, it all sounds very strange, very bizarre, very absurd. Anastasia, thank you for that call from the front line in uh, Beirut.
Um, now, you remember Omar in uh, Dubai uh, referred to a video showing an explosion in Syria which was remarkably similar to the one that took place in Beirut. And so we went looking for it and the lads have found it. Can we, can we see it? It is another amazing uh, mushroom type uh, affair. I can't see the color of it. Is the smoke red like the uh, smoke in Beirut was red? That I can't see, but it is, uh, uh, it is extraordinary. It's not red. And this was seven months ago. Well, it's one of these uh, coincidences, perhaps. And now Dr. Ranjit, uh, who uh, has helped us through every day of the crisis, which shows no signs of ending. The coronavirus crisis is spiraling in some places, particularly in the United States, out of control, uh, literally out of control. And nothing that the president says or does uh, from the podium, from the presidency, uh, helps apparently in any way. Here in Britain, uh, where we have uh, one of the worst outcomes in the whole world, that's England and Scotland, despite propaganda to the contrary, uh, Scotland has uh, the third worst outcome in the world. Uh, Britain as a whole has the third worst outcome in the world. Contrary to propaganda, there is no material difference between the outcomes in England and in Scotland. Both are dreadful. And now we have uh, new lockdowns in Scotland, in Aberdeen, which is causing a lot of controversy, uh, and uh, in Northwest England, in the greater Manchester area, now extended to Preston. So we better hear from the doctor just how he thinks this is all developing. Dr. Ranjit, thanks as always uh, for uh, joining us. Tell us, if you will, the thinking behind new lockdowns and whether they are likely to become a new normal, i.e. local, regional lockdowns rather than one size fits all. George, thanks for having me back on. Pleasure to be with you and congratulations on the birth of your Thank you. beautiful baby daughter. Thank you. I think Stephanie's a nice name, by the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'll take um, a one for it. Sorry, George. Sticking to topic, um, you know, the, as you say, coronavirus very much still with us. Uh, almost 20 million cases test diagnosed in the world with 732,000 deaths. And the United States this week exceeded uh, 5 million. Uh, Brazil ex exceeded 3 million. Uh, and India, 2.2 million. So cases absolutely out of control in a whole swathe of states across the southern and eastern part of the United States in particular, from Texas all the way through Tennessee, Georgia, uh, Florida, uh, uh, up to towards New York, where there are fewer cases now. But many, many, many states experiencing a surge, an increase in uh, uh, cases and an increase of deaths. And they're having the problem of um, really greater than a, a thousand deaths again per day uh, for the last three weeks, only a few days less, but on average, greater than a thousand deaths a day for the last three weeks. Um, in the United Kingdom, clearly our death rate has fallen 
markedly compared to the peak where we also had a three-week period uh, of a thousand deaths per day. Of course, we're a very much smaller country uh, than the United States. So that's really, as, as you say, very much more significant in terms of cases per million of the population, um, which is why we have the, the poor outcome, relatively speaking, you're, you're talking about. The trouble with our uh, approach to coronavirus has always been the same. And I, and I, I don't like to be repetitive. I would love to give good news and say that we're doing a wonderful job. But I fear that we're not doing a, a wonderful job. And the public health measures remain the only really effective measures we have against COVID. Those nations which have basically returned to normal are those which have effectively eliminated COVID, George. And it can be done and it should be done. And that was the correct approach. Clearly, it's easier to eliminate when the numbers are small than when they're large. And in fact, some of the measures we introduced, you know, which seemed um, a little illogical to a lot of people, we introduced very late. We introduced a lockdown, which was just a very crude measure to stop anyone from seeing anyone, stopping the virus from having fuel. And then once the late case numbers were low, we've released lockdown and we're meant to be doing track and trace very well. What's very clear is that we're not doing track and trace very well. And that's intimately linked to the privatization and outsourcing of all these services. Uh, actually, there are two kind of bodies uh, performing track and trace at the moment. As, as I mentioned previously in one of the shows, uh, it was Serco. Serco is a private company who run prison contracts and uh, hospital catering programs, but also various other services. They're a logistics company who will uh, accept money, large contracts from the government, and then employ people to do the job. They don't have any particular experience of track or trace in a pandemic, but that didn't stop them from bidding any more than many other companies had no experience of providing PPE. They have so far been giving 208 million. Uh, they've uh, employed 27,000 people. Uh, those 27,000 people uh, during the 12 weeks in which they've been employed have on average, uh, George contacted two people each. That's oh. two people each. Uh, so it's an incredibly low number. And it works out at about just half the numbers of contacts that they need to have traced to really have effective sight of the virus. So it's a straightforward thing. We don't yet have a vaccine that works. Um, you know, I understand why people are kind of bored with this story to an extent. There are other things that are killing more. Poverty kills 30, 40 million people a year, 12, 13 million children a year. But COVID comes on top of all that. On you top know, of it, yeah, exactly. They are already dying. This is, yeah, this is on top of that. Absolutely. And, you know, it really is showing how poorly our health system, as it's being privatized and wound down, is able to adapt. If you, can, if you contrast that very poor job that Serco have done, it's been criticized by Alison Pollock, it's been criticized by Independent Sage, I think very effectively, um, and we'll come back a little bit to in Independent Sage and the, and the policies they're putting forward as how we go forward. Um, but if you contrast that to actually the NHS's own staff, to the extent that you know we have still a, a, a local health teams of Public Health England in place, They've been under strong threats, strong cuts for a long period of time. But they, on the other hand, have traced far greater numbers. So about 140,000 people they've traced. And, into, and they're considered more complex cases in the community, whereas Serco simply employs someone who pick up the phone and they're very ineffective because if people don't pick up the phone, they've got no other way of pursuing those contacts. The local health teams can visit houses, can speak to people, can win their trust, can make them understand that they're not there as a sinister third party, but simply 
trying to help the community's health in the same way that a district nurse might visit us if we come out of hospital and need a wound changing. So there's a system of rapport and they're able to trace people and actually question them, sit down and, and help them fill in the answers. Who are the people who've been in contact? Who could you have infected? People do generally want to help. And they have contacted, unbelievably, about 99% of their targets. So, you know, and yet Serco, their contract's coming up for Newell and they're scheduled to get another 400 million. I think it's very likely they will get that precisely because we've seen again and again that is the favoured option of our government. So, you know, our numbers are lower. I think if you look over the last week, 372 people, if you look, have died, there, there may be uh, more to come. And of course, those numbers are relatively low, but 372 people is not a, really a small number, George. And this is, as again, independent sage port out, this should be the easiest time to control the virus. People are not at school, people are not at university, more people are on holiday. Uh, the weather is such that people are outside enjoying themselves and not in crowded spaces. So all of the conditions are in our favour and yet it's been pointed out that, just as we said last week, uh, it's been popularly recognised in, in the press this week that the R rates pretty much across the board are creeping back towards the one and at some places exceeding one. So in other words, the numbers of infections are increasing, the, the numbers of deaths are down, the numbers of Test positive cruising cases are increasing again over over a uh, thousand towards a thousand one hundred over the last twenty four hours per day, and that's the numbers test proven based on antibody results. As we said last week, it's likely to be actually three or four times that, perhaps four four and a half thousand people getting the virus a day. At this one, it should be the easiest time to control, and therefore that's led to a whole you know lot of a renewed discussion about what are the things that should be opening and what are the things that should be closing and just how effective it is to let it run rampant in the community and then shut everything down again and you know doing it piecemeal here and there of course it means that there's very mixed messages people are fed up of quite a long sacrifice of several months um, that they've been effectively putting their lives on hold they're told that that's why the economy has been tanking though actually there's been a very severe systemic crisis of capitalism as i think you've had professor wolf on your show and, and, and pointed out quite well this is not just coronavirus this is a problem inherent in our economic system, which is compounded by coronavirus, but not caused by it. And of course, desperate to you know, get the economy going again, but in the process um, have taken the foot off the brakes and without doing the simple public health things that really can mean like Vietnam has, like you know, New Zealand has, as of course China did very early on and made it, you know, its results published to the world and told us really, gave us a blueprint of how to approach this correctly. Um, we're, not, we're not doing those things, George. And so it, it's perhaps boring that the story knocks on and on and on. No, it's, it's, genuine... it's not at all uh, boring, at least not as you uh, uh, comment on it. Um, last point, Doctor. If cases are going up uh, again, as they are, but deaths are going down, does that mean the virus is running out of toxicity, that it is not as deadly as it was, or another reason? Uh, well, to me, it indicates that while the, it, we also see that lag. So 
someone's infected and uh, the virus runs uh, quite a long course. So though it can manifest symptoms soon, can take two or three weeks to show symptoms. And the, and the, and the illness, if people who are in intensive care, some of them, uh, as for example, uh, the poet Michael Rosen, or the author, you know, run for two or three months. So the deaths, there's a, a long lag between when the infections are. So what it probably means is that if infections start going up, then I'm afraid in a number of weeks, we will start to see that the deaths stop falling and and the, the trend is reversed. Of course, it may be um, that the most vulnerable people um, are now more effectively isolated. Certainly our testing capacity has increased, though again, privatized, contracted out and not well coordinated. So it's possible that the, uh, the, the death rate is lower, but we've got no strong evidence as to why that would be. So it's likely to be the case that if the R rate starts going up, the number of cases start going up, I'm afraid to say that the number of people who succumb to the virus will also go up in a number of weeks, George. Dr. Ranjit, thank you. And we'll see you next week because this isn't going away anytime soon. Thank you again for your help. Now, what should I name my new child? To my astonishment, uh, Persephone, which I genuinely never heard of before, uh, is doing rather well. Persephone, 38%. Maggie, 39%. That's those of a certain age. And Nicola, 23%. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. Here's a call from Coventry. Staffan. Staffan in Coventry on Beirut. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, good evening, George. Um, congratulations on the birth of your newborn. Thank you uh, so much. Um, uh, and thank you for coming on tonight after 48 hours without sleep. It's I, much haven't, appreciated. I haven't slept, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm, I'm running on tea. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you're not. So, yeah, you haven't got so tired just speaking like Joe Biden yet. But um, no, it's great to yeah, it's great that you've made it tonight. Thank um, you. Yeah, just it really stunned me to see um, Lebanon and, and what happened and the deaths. It's, it's, it's traumatic, and it just takes me back to sort of late seventies, my early adult years in the eighties, where all I saw was um, yeah. tragedy in Beirut, bombings yeah. by Israeli jets. Um, you know, just uh, terrorist, ex you know, bombings. It was all, every time you switch the news on, there's something bad happening in Beirut. And I really feel for the people over there. It's just, um, I, I, it's just tragic. I, I don't know what's happened. You know, so I saw um, Rania earlier on talking about it, and I'm glad she survived. Um, but, yeah, I just, I just, my heart goes out to people in that country. Why they don't deserve all this? It's just, you know, it's just, it's most. Uh, it's uh, it's very unlucky uh, for Lebanon. Uh, it, uh, through no fault of its own, uh, had to accommodate hundreds of thousands. It's a very small place. Hundreds of yeah. thousands of Palestinian refugees in 1948. Then again in 1970 after uh, the uh, the events in in Jordan. Uh, and then again intermittently uh, through the decades. And then when the war against Syria began, uh, had to absorb hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees. This in a very small and poor country, uh, a country without industry of its own, without significant agriculture of its own, a place where Arabs who did have wealth from Iraq, from the Gulf, uh, used to come and buy property and deposit money and have holidays and so on, all of mm. which is now yeah. at an end. So even without this disastrous explosion, 
Lebanon was in a very, very serious situation. And now yes. God knows uh, what will happen. The only thing that makes me think they'll come out of it is they've come out of so much before. The Lebanese yes, are quite an extraordinary people, I tell you. They are, and that's the point I was going to make, that the fact that they've survived so much in the past, I'm sure they'll come out of this stronger even more. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, just, yeah, it's just remarkable, the resilience of the people over there. That they seem to, I know there's a lot of trouble going on the note. It does resemble yeah. Hong Kong, but it's, um, you know... The, well, let's, the if there's going to be any of those three, let's hope it's Hong Kong and not the other two. Oh, good, Hong Kong we can uh, live with. Two of my children are half Lebanese, uh, and as I say... Yeah. I, I entered uh, Lebanon well over 40 years ago, and it took me into the Arab world, which uh, has been an absorbing interest of mine for uh, well over half of my life. So it's very important to yeah, me. Yeah, it does hold a, yeah, a great deal of personal affection in your heart as well, yeah, George. Yeah, but, um, yeah there's another point to make to the yeah. guy I phoned up to get on the show is um, how much more I've started watching RT. And one of the reasons behind that is the fact that when they have guests on like yourself or people with other opposite views, they actually let them speak. Yeah. Exactly. Without interruption. I mean, I mean, yeah, that, you, yeah. <laughs> you know, Stefan, I am on seven days a week and I write yeah. a column. Nobody yeah. has ever, not ever, in the nearly 10 years I've been working here, 10 years, has ever said to me that I shouldn't say something or I should say something. That would yeah. never happen at the BBC or Sky, Stefan. Oh, no, what, I've watched some of your older stuff on there, and I've seen you when you have been on in the past, and I think, well, look, just let the man speak, will you? Exactly, and yeah. it's like, <laughs> and it's not, you know, it's not just yourself. It's anybody who seems to go on yeah. these shows, yeah. and then it's like, they can't get away with but Rick Sanchez's show, absolutely brilliant. Manila, all of them, you have the irrepressible Rachel Blevins on today. They're wonderful, well. and Rachel, uh, uh, Rachel's a, a rising star, <laughs> Stefan. Rachel, you're, you're, you're going to remember later that you first saw her on here and on RT America. Stefan, thanks yeah. for the lovely call. I appreciate it. Uh, you've still got time to call 02077 982255 or in the US 001757744480. Raymond is in London on Lebanon. Go ahead, Raymond. Hello, George. Um, first, let me congratulate you and your Thank wife. You. Thank you, sir. Oh, that's fantastic. It, it's such an honor, isn't it, to have a baby, whether it's, it's the first one yeah. or the sixth one. It's, it's unbelievable. Just like, isn't it? unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, whatever happened, George? No, I'm not well read in the subject. I'll follow you on a number of platforms. But whatever happened to the Arab League? Yes, because the, the Arabs have a league. As I always say, uh, if they do, it's a Vauxhall Conference League, Raymond, not the Premiership. Yeah, well, it, they need to have an Arab League again with Syria and all the rest of the countries that, that stand together against these oppressions because someone, somewhere, is trying to unstabilise the Lebanon like they unstabilised uh, yeah, Iraq. Yeah. Like they unstabilise Syria, Libya. like they unstabilise Iran, like they have. You know, it, that's what I want to know from you, George. Well, I'll what, tell you what, what can uh, be done, the, really, no, no, nothing, because the uh, the Arabs uh, are completely divided. There are people trying to destabilise them, and there have been uh, devastating wars 
against uh, Arab countries uh, from Israel, from America, from Britain, from uh, France and others in the case of yes. Libya. Uh, but the Arabs are pretty good at uh, murdering themselves, murdering each other, and are remarkably easily uh, set, to, uh, set to each other's throat uh, for the purpose of keeping them divided, uh, so that they will be weak, so that they can be robbed. There's no point in beating about the bush here. Uh, Arabs, Ar Arabs, Arabs have agency. Uh, they could decide not to murder each other. Uh, they could have decided that whether America wanted the overthrow of Bashar or not, uh, they were not going to go along with it. Uh, whether uh, the uh, government of Saddam Hussein was bad or not, uh, they were not going to collaborate uh, with the British and American governments to invade and occupy it. Uh, they could have decided whatever they thought about Colonel Gaddafi, uh, replacing him with ISIS and Al-Qaeda was definitely not a step forward, and so on. So the point, Raymond, is this, uh, that the Arabs are divided and weak. The West wants to keep them divided and weak. For a hundred years, they have been divided and weak, and the West was very happy uh, for that to be so, and arranged things so that it was more likely uh, to be so. Last word to you, Raymond. Thank you very much, George. It is, in fact, the College of Knowledge, brother. Thank, Thank you, you, my you dear friend. Much. Thank you, my dear friend. Uh, I've got three pages of baby names. Uh, Stacy says, I love Persephone. Well, that's um, Dr. Angie and Stacy both love Persephone. It's growing on me. Uh, Sandy. Uh, says, Grace, because I'm sure she'll have it. And Humpty Dumpty says, Ghislaine, that's mischievous. Alejandro says, a wise man lets his wife decide. Well, actually, I picked all of my children's names, and all of them were good picks, I think, and uh, their mothers agree. Uh, Twitter user says, Georgette, of course. And Leo says, I'm sorry, but I can't be get behind any of those. Maybe something like sky. Mm, warm, Leo, warm. And Paul says, just tuned in. Baby name suggestion, Alaska. That's a nice one, actually. And Fra says, I believe the explosion in Beirut was accidental only because a fire preceded it, which triggered the nitrate. But an inquiry may establish its provenance. And on Facebook, Phil says, I didn't know George was old enough to have children yet. And Jazz says, in a few months, we'll start hearing the effects on people from the ammonium nitrate, from breathing problems, respiratory infections, etc. And James says, Bojo should resign. He did an awful job. And on Twitter, Claire says, loving the new Labour ad that played at the last break, hilarious and true, sadly. I didn't actually hear it. But here's That Was The Week. Uh, this is where I look at the seven days in history which changed our world for good and bad. It was on this day, this day, in 1945, that the United States dropped the second atomic bomb called Fat Man on Nagasaki, Japan, destroying part of the city and killing an estimated 50,000 people just like that. In 1965, Singapore, separated from the Federation 
of Malaysia and gained its independence. And in 1974, Richard Nixon resigned as President of the United States over the Watergate break-in scandal. And Vice President Gerald Ford was sworn in to take his place as the 38th US President. In 1969, the actress Sharon Tate was found brutally murdered in her LA home along with three high society friends and a fifth victim. In January 1971, Charles Manson and three of his followers, Susan Atkin, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten were convicted of the Tate-LaBianca murders after the longest murder trial in US history. In 1971, the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Brian Faulkner, introduced a new law giving the authorities the power to indefinitely detain suspected terrorists without trial. More than 300 suspects were detained in a series of dawn raids. Two days later, in 2003, Britain recorded its hottest day ever. What, like hotter than today? As the temperature soared to 38.1. That's 100.6 degrees Fahrenheit in old money. That was in Gravesend in Kent. I don't know what it reached in London today, but it was pretty close to that, I can tell you. And on the 12th of August, 1964, one of the so-called great train robbers escaped from Winston Green Prison in Birmingham. Charlie Wilson, then aged 32, was apparently freed by a gang of three men who broke into the jail in the early hours of the morning. Wilson went on the run for four years and was finally recaptured in Canada and returned to jail in the UK, where he served out the rest of his sentence. He then moved to the Costa del Sol in Spain, of course, uh, where he is alleged to have become involved in drug dealing and was shot dead by a hitman on the 23rd of April 1990 as he relaxed by his swimming pool. By the way, a big thanks to my friends in the Prison Officers Association for their very, very kind uh, uh, greetings and uh, congratulations, good wishes uh, on the birth of my latest child. The journalist at the centre of the controversy surrounding the death of weapons expert Dr David Kelly on the same day in 2003 admitted that his language wasn't perfect when he reported the government had sexed up its weapons dossier on Iraq. Of course, it wasn't perfect. It was a grotesque understatement. Andrew Gilligan, the aforementioned defence correspondent of the BBC Radio 4 Today programme was giving evidence to the Hutton inquiry on its second day. Hutton absolved the government of any kind of dishonourable, underhand or duplicitous strategy in the leaking of Dr Kelly's name to the press. Well, you'll find out in my forthcoming film just how far off beam the late Justice Hutton was in that case. On the 13th of August 1961, troops in East Germany sealed off the border between East and West Berlin, shutting off the escape route for thousands of refugees from the East, it says here. Within days, troops began replacing the barbed wire with concrete blocks, and the wall became a permanent structure. It was, of course, the Berlin Wall, which eventually reached nearly 12 feet high and 66 miles long.
On the same day in 1966, China announced plans for a new leap forward after the first meeting in four years of the Communist Party's Central Committee and the so-called Cultural Revolution heralded a dramatic purge of Mao's rivals. On August the 14th in 1969, the British government sent troops into Northern Ireland in what it said was a limited operation to restore law and order. The army's warm welcome was short-lived, as was the British, in British government's intention to pull out the troops within days. And finally, on the 15th of August 1945, Japan surrendered unconditionally to the Allies after almost six years of war. The Allies had delivered Japan an ultimatum to surrender on the 28th of July. When this was ignored, the US dropped the two atomic bombs on Hiroshima, 6th August, and Nagasaki, 9th August. That was the week that was in all of our histories. Time is running, so let's get as many calls in as we can. William is in London on Prince Andrew. Go ahead, William. Hello there. Nice to speak to you. And you, sir. Thank you for having me on. Welcome. Um, yeah, I, I'm calling in a reaction, actually, to an earlier caller who was calling about the arms um, trading, perhaps, of the Maxwell family in general. Yeah, I think he might have been getting confused. He said that Epstein was involved in arms trading, but I, I have not seen that, any yeah. report of that. Yeah, well, I just wanted to bring, perhaps, to the table the um, cable from WikiLeaks regarding Prince Andrew's, in fact, um, role in trade and what sort of views and, and affairs he may have had within, <coughs> excuse me, within the um, trading in that area. Yeah, go I mean, ahead. Know, yeah, go ahead. Remind you know, us. Remind us. Well, well we know in, in 2010 his relationships with sort of Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan were, yeah. were a little bit promiscuous, to say the least. And, and then the cable came out saying that he was sort of condoning bribery and so on and so forth from um, the BAE and, 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 and the cable between himself and America, the, the diplomatic cable which went through there, which The Guardian published. published. Um, I find that very, very interesting. I think, you know, I think it's important to remember that time at this time and, and with what we see going on. You know, I, yeah, I, I, I don't I, know. I, I don't quite know why he uh, has had apparent money troubles all of his life. He is the Queen's son. Uh, he used to get, anyway, a handsome sum. Uh, most things like castles and so on are provided to him. Uh, and yet he seems to have had a constant need uh, to get down and dirty uh, doing business uh, with some yeah. rum, some rum characters. Yes. He, I mean, yes. the Duchy of Lancaster provides the Queen with a very, very substantial sum of money, uh, and he, yeah. he, he gets an allowance. So why he has to do business in Kyrgyzstan, uh, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's um, you know, going back to something you said before that you'd experienced in the House of Parliament, very, very unsavory experience, to say the least, the very mm. least. Um, I, I, what brought me such attention in this particular area was that, uh, that um, I had been through a certain sort of relationship with Russia, a partner of mine I was sponsoring to bring to, from Russia to the UK, and we went through hell on earth. You know, we went, I was accused of being a spy in the high court by the UKPA. Um, for absolutely no reason. But during that time, obviously, I, I needed 
and big shout out here to Julian Assange, please, because he really helped me during that time, and it's very nice to be able to say that. But during that, I was in Russia, and I had, uh, you know, I won't go 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 into it here, but uh, really some very odd um, communications with people, you know, relating to sort of uh, blood diamonds, things like that, you know, conflict diamonds. I think it's all very relevant, and I and I again, Julian Assange, you know, he brought all that to the table, and I I really. We'd just like to remember him in the right. as well. You know. Hat tip to Julian Assange. William, thanks for the call. First time caller. Uh, don't be a stranger. Michael is in Gothenburg. Go ahead, Michael. Okay. I just wanted to weigh in on the blast in, in Beirut. I yeah. have no uh, specific information, but I uh, just would encourage people not to conspiracy theorize too much. Uh, I do know about the Russian uh, vessel that was delivering uh, aluminum nitrate to, and it was actually on its way to continue. It wasn't, to, it wasn't Russian. It to, was Ukrainian. It was registered. It was to, Ukrainian. Yeah, it's an, yeah, an important difference. Yes. Yes. God. And it was on its way. <laughs> it was to, registered uh, from uh, Moldova, which is, of course, a prime maritime nation. Right. And it was going to travel further to, to Mozambique, was it not? Yeah, there was there's some doubt as to whether it was uh, going to Africa uh, or yeah. uh, whether it was going to uh, the Wahhabist uh, rebels in Syria. There's doubt about that. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, and that, and, oh, now, I did say I don't want to... Uh, float conspiracy theories. Now, an interesting thing about the term conspiracy theory is that that phrase was itself minted uh, by the CIA to yeah. discourage people from uh, to, to make people seem ridiculous for questioning yeah. uh, the the motives of the CIA. Sure. Is, that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah you're yeah. absolutely right. And of course, there have been plenty of conspiracies. Uh, some of yes. the biggest events uh, in our time, Michael, have of been uh, conspiracies. Uh, but Absolutely. that doesn't mean that everything is a conspiracy. Correct, correct. And the conspiracy theory can is is either true or it's false. Yeah. So it's nothing to. Uh, yeah, quite. If it looks to, like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm active. I just wanted to you know, put this out there. I'm active as a member of the, uh, uh, in Swedish, it's called Judar for Israelist Palestinsk Fred, the Jews for, the Jews for a Israeli-Palestinian peace. And so we are working uh, in here in Gothenburg to, you know, promote uh, public opinion, you know, where the Palestinian rights of the, you know, the rights of the Palestinian people are not to be overlooked in any way, shape, or form, and uh, Israel is, you know, just way out of line, and it's got to be reined in. And I don't know where to begin with that. But no, uh, well, no time, alas, uh, now uh, on this show. But a uh, uh, big uh, shout out to all friends in Denmark, in Gothenburg, and to the Jewish voices for Palestinian rights in particular. I'm very grateful. I think yeah, go yeah. On. Last word, Mike. I think, I think it's just so important uh, for us as Jews to show that we are not going down this Zionist uh, propaganda path and to vilify people, you know, an entire people. 
it's just that just doesn't make any sense. Amen. Amen. Thank you, yeah. Michael. God bless you. Sam is in West Yorkshire uh, on Fathers. Go ahead, Sam. Uh, hi, George. Can you hear me? Yes, very well. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say, I want to tell all the men out there, all the fathers, that you don't have to do anything wrong. You don't have to be abusive or you don't have to uh, um, do, do anything illegal. The, 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 once you've split up with your ex, she can cut you out of your children's lives forever. I spent two years... And even if you're not cut out, it'll be from going from living with them uh, 24 hours a day uh, to contact... Uh, on a Tuesday at six o'clock, handed back that, at eight o'clock. That was me, George. Uh, when we split up initially, the children was, was living with me. I mean, she was having mental problems. So, so we agreed that the children would, would live with me. And for a year, they lived with me. And then when she decided that she wanted the children back in their lives, all she had to do was to go to court. And, and the court did not rule in her favour in the beginning. So eventually, she started making up... Um, allegations of domestic and sexual abuse and then all of a sudden I was completely cut out of the children's lives. The, 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 the police turned up at my house uh, at one o'clock in the morning. They, they, they took the kids. I, I had no idea that this was going on. This happened overnight and then I spent the, uh, the I, I spent two, two years fighting uh, first the allegations which were unproven. I, I don't have a criminal record. Uh, I, I've never broken the law. I've never been in court. I never, I, I never even raised my voice at the children, George. But, but then all of a sudden, she makes these allegations, and, and I, I have not seen the kids in 13 years. Oh, dear I God. I spent two weeks fighting in court. I, I exhausted all my savings. I, I quit my job so I could spend f uh, full time on, on this legal case. And then, and then after I run out of money, I couldn't afford to, to go to court anymore. And I, I haven't seen my kids in 13 years. Heartbreaking, uh, Sam. I'm very sorry to hear that, uh, but the hour is such, I really can't go into it any further. Uh, I need to move on. Uh, Nikki is in Paris on coronavirus, the pandemic. Nikki, welcome. Hi, George, and congratulations from me as well on Thank our you. new little comrade. Thank you. Persephone is Greek, by the way. She yeah, was the she's... daughter of Dimitra, the goddess of um, agriculture, a very important, uh, uh, very important uh, well, classical figure ve very, from mythology. Uh, very uh, uneducated and ignorant of me uh, not to have heard no. of her. <laughs> uh, and the name is growing on me. I don't think it will grow it's, on my it's wife. It's a great but, name, uh, but she'll have yeah. to spell it all her life. Exactly, that's the problem. <laughs> I like short names, spell. Nikki. Short <laughs> names that you the Chinese can person. say easily. These are, yeah. these are my uh, important rubrics. Of course, they've got to have a meaning and so on, but short yeah. that the Chinese can say, because I figure by the time my children grow up, well, the Chinese yeah. are going to be the most important country of in course. the world. Anyway, You're go right. ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you uh, about what you as George would uh, do exactly to handle the pandemic socially and economically. Uh, you know, what is the well, best uh, way you know, to handle I, I, I wouldn't this have, at this I, point? I wouldn't have started uh, from here. Uh, being half an Irishman, I'm allowed to say that. Uh, as the Irishman apocryphally did when asked the way to Dublin, uh, the, the only way to handle this is in a draconian, uh, even authorita authoritarian way. Uh, 
if you're New Zealand uh, with uh, sparse population, uh, widely flung, and high levels of education and health services, you can do it a different way. But the reason that China, uh, which would easily, given the intensely, uh, densely populated areas of China, did not become a complete catastrophe, is because China acted as its system allowed it to do in an extremely authoritarian manner. Therefore, it literally, when they said lockdown, they don't mean a lockdown that you still get on the bus or you still go into uh, work uh, on the underground. Lockdown is lockdown in China. Means that you simply cannot go anywhere, that you must stay in your house, that you will be arrested if you come out of your house. That's the kind of decisive state, centralized state action that China took, and that's what stopped uh, the catastrophe that China would otherwise have been. Now, of course, South Korea, uh, which is also, by the way, uh, relatively speaking, uh, for a Western-oriented capitalist country, quite authoritarian, quite centrally uh, uh, strong as a state power, uh, did something of the same. Uh, but I think that China and Vietnam dealt with this best, and they did so by taking draconian and even authoritarian action right at the beginning. Nikki, last word. Uh, I agree, but they, they're socialist systems. The thing is, how does one do the draconian thing under a capitalist system where a worker has the choice of dying of poverty or dying of the virus? Quite so. But that's the superiority of the socialist system uh, so far as I and I infer you uh, are concerned. Uh, we uh, should have done as much as we could like China and South Korea. As long as our system uh, was able to, we should have gone down uh, that road. I've got to go, Nikki, because Nicola in Swindon wants to talk about the same subject. Nicola, go ahead. Good evening to you, George, and congratulations on the birth of your daughter. Thank you I so much. Hope you, I do hope you pick the name of Nicola. After all, it's a, it's a great name. And, Wonderful uh, name. It is a wonderful name. Um, but we're in Ireland, George. We should have closed the airports and the ports way back at the beginning of the year. We allowed uh, millions of people to fly in here, including from the worst affected places. Yes, millions in and out, and it's been spread. When you've got a world pandemic, you don't go zooming around the world, spreading it from one place to another, which is what people have done. Quite innocently, some of them, but... Uh, 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 oh, I'm sure all of we, them. We, Nobody wants to no, spread uh, we, a pandemic. We closed, closed it but but the we, numbers... we should have really locked down, Nicola. Really locked down. Nobody and goes the... out. Nobody goes to work. Nobody moves around. Nobody flies in here. We are an island, after all. We could actually exactly. have protected ourselves in that way. So easy. So easy to have done. Uh, and the numbers, the reason I've been told that the numbers are increasing now is because we are actually testing people and finding people with the virus who don't have any symptoms. Whereas at the height of the virus, 
they weren't testing because they didn't want even more people coming to the hospital, whereas now we are actually looking for it rather than it just appearing. How do you That's get tested, Nicola? Given my age and given that my wife was pregnant until yesterday, why were we never tested? Why were we never offered a test? Who got tested if not us? I do not know. I was nearly tested. I was driving along and some fellow leapt out and went to wave me into the testing centre and I was actually just trying to get home for my dinner. But <laughs> I, nearly, I nearly got tested by mistake. <laughs> uh, it, just, it always struck me as funny why somebody of my age uh, with, uh, with a pregnant wife and many small children, uh, I would have thought I was high on the list to get a test. But I was I never, I was so never well. able to get one. I would have thought so as well. Uh, but... Uh, well, there you go. I, I, it, how this government works in, in mysterious ways, I will <laughs> never understand it. Exactly. Thanks, Nicola. Nice to talk to you. Uh, what name uh, should I choose for my new child? A, Nicola, 24%, up one. Uh, B, Maggie, 37%, down two. And C, Persephone, 39%, down one. So who would have thought that the most popular suggestion would have been Persephone, who we now know is a figure of classical uh, importance. Um, it is, it did grow on me, and I'm sorry for all the people uh, who sent in beautiful name suggestions that I simply haven't had time uh, to reach. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to you for going to all that uh, trouble. Now, uh, the poll is closed. 686 of you uh, voted. Uh, Persephone won. But the child will actually be called, if you want to write this down, because it's slightly complicated. Her first name is Oban, like the Scottish, uh, beautiful little Scottish town, Oban, with the uh, father going to the left at the top of the O, Oban. Oban Amaria, A-M-A-R-I-A. -A -A. Oban Amaria Galloway, and there she is, my latest little darling. And there she is, there's a family picture uh, <laughs> taken earlier today. And this is Gayatri in, it was a home birth. This is her in the pool. Uh, we rented uh, a, a pool in the bottom of the bed Two wonderful, totally wonderful. Oh my goodness. Congratulations from the guys behind the glass. Thank you. That didn't expect that. Thanks. Thanks so much, Ron. Uh, that's very touching. Thank you. Uh, so she gave birth in this pool uh, with two wonderful uh, midwives. Um, totally wonderful. I mean, it always amazes me when I have close contact with. Uh, National Health Service uh, people. How dedicated they are. I mean, they'd get their wages, whether they were really conscientious and dedicated or not. It's truly a, vo a vocation. These two women really cared uh, that this baby should be born healthily. Uh, it was very grueling. As I say, I'm over it now. <laughs> but my poor wife uh, is uh, still very tired. And the baby is two, uh, but there she is with her brother and sister. So it's perfect symmetry, actually. Uh, by the grace of God, I have six children, 
three boys and three girls. It's not perfect. I'm so blessed. I thank God for all of my blessings. And I thank you for all of the good wishes uh, that you have been sending uh, me by all platforms over the last uh, few days. And thank you to my dear friends. Who knew that my friends through there knew how to pick flowers? Uh, thank you very much for watching, for listening. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time, in the same place, and join me again for the mother of all talk shows. I'm going home now for another sleepless night. Hope it didn't show too much. Good night.